welcome to this edition of the Jane NP podcast. It's been over 200 years since James Parkinson's seminal essay on the clinical phenomenology which came to define Parkinson's disease. Despite almost two centuries, many challenges remain in the development of disease-modifying therapies. Joining me to discuss some of these challenges is Professor Joseph Jankovic. Professor Jankovic is an internationally recognised leader in the area of movement disorders, leading the Parkinson's Disease Centre and Movement Disorders Clinic at Baylor College of Medicine, where he also holds the Distinguished Chair in Movement Disorders. He's lent his significant expertise by penning a 2020 hindsight paper in this month's JNNP entitled Parkinson's Disease, Ethiopathogenesis and Treatment and he joins me now to provide an overview of this paper. So a very warm welcome to you, and thanks for joining us on the podcast, Professor Jankovic. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm honoured, of course, uh, to be invited by JNP to write this uh, review article, and uh, I'm glad that I have the opportunity to discuss with you some of the highlights uh, from this uh, uh, review article. So a lot of time has passed since that original description by Parkinson, um, so I might start by asking for you, what have been the key historical milestones in our understanding of this disease? Well, obviously, the, uh, the history of Parkinson's disease started with James Parkinson when he first uh, uh, described six uh, individuals in his essay on the shaking palsy in 1817. Um, he uh, characterized uh, the clinical symptoms uh, quite well, that there were some problems with his description, but overall he should be credited for uh, bringing um, the symptoms of Parkinson's disease uh, to the forefront. And then subsequently, uh, Charcot, the French neurologist, gave him credit by um, naming the disease uh, Parkinson's disease. So clearly 1817 uh, was the, the landmark paper um, and uh, the beginning of the history of Parkinson's disease. Uh, it was then in uh, 1912 when uh, a German pathologist, uh, Frederick Louis, uh, described the characteristic pathological feature of uh, Parkinson's disease, which is the Louis body, um, now known as the Louis body, which is an intracytoplasmic uh, inclusion that uh, is basically required for the pathological diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Uh, we can come back uh, later to uh, the meaning of uh, the Louis body in terms of pathology and pathogenesis. Uh, subsequently, I guess Arvid Carlson and Ole Honikevich, uh, who unfortunately recently passed away, should be credited with recognizing uh, that uh, dopamine is a neurotransmitter in the brain and that dopamine is missing in the brains of patients with Parkinson's disease. And then subsequently, in 1961, uh, there was a proof of concept uh, that uh, was demonstrated by um, improvement of um, Parkinson's symptoms with intravenous uh, infusion of levodopa. And uh, this uh, therapy was then advanced by George Katsias uh, in his landmark study in 1967, where he demonstrated that levodopa can be used effectively and safely to improve symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Uh, I guess the next milestone was um, uh, the discovery of MPTP by Bill Langston, um, a neurologist in the San Francisco Bay Area, who found uh, individuals who were injecting themselves with what was thought to be homemade heroin. But it turns out to be this uh, toxic compound called MPTP, which destroyed uh, their dopaminergic neurons, caused them to have Parkinsonism. And this compound, MPTP, was subsequently used to, to create 
animal models uh, of Parkinsonism. So when injected in uh, mice or monkeys, uh, it causes um, destruction of the dopaminergic neurons and uh, motor and behavioral uh, symptoms uh, that we typically see in patients with Parkinson's disease. I guess the next uh, major landmark uh, was the discovery of uh, the first gene um, associated with Parkinson's disease by uh, Polymeropolis at the NIH. In 1986, and when he discovered the locus, and in 1997, uh, he um, and his colleagues at NIH uh, first reported the gene that codes for alpha-synuclein, which uh, turns out to be a very uh, important discovery because until then, we really didn't know much about alpha-synuclein, and now alpha-synuclein is uh, taking the central, the center stage in our understanding of the pathogenesis of Parkinson's disease. So I think those are some of the major um, uh, milestones. There are, you know, many others, uh, but uh, the discovery of the gene um, sort of started the new era of uh, genetics of Parkinson's disease, even though Parkinson's disease was known to um, occur in families uh, it was not until uh, that discovery of uh, the alpha synuclein gene that led to a uh, discovery of many, many other genes. Uh, there are now over 100 genetic loci that have been found to be associated with Parkinson's disease. Whilst there are still many unknowns regarding the causes of Parkinsonism, uh, there has been a lot of work establishing potential environmental and genetic causes or risk factors. Can you talk us through what we know about these potential causes? Well, as you can imagine, there have been many, many studies uh, trying to understand what is the cause of Parkinson's disease. And uh, one of the major areas of interest has been uh, on environmental factors. There have been many uh, studies to suggest that certain pesticides, for example, which, by the way, uh, may have a structural uh, similarity to to MPTP that we just mentioned, may cause uh, Parkinsonism. So uh, there have been epidemiological studies to link uh, Parkinson's disease with exposure to pesticides. There have been studies to show that uh, people who drink well water, uh, who are exposed to certain heavy metals or solvents, uh, may develop uh, Parkinson's. So there are a number of environmental toxic factors. There's some suggestion that even head injury, particularly when combined with some genetic predisposition, can uh, lead to to Parkinson's disease. So those are some of the environmental factors that have been linked to Parkinson's disease. And there are some uh, factors that have been found to be protective of Parkinson's disease. Probably the most outstanding is the uh, consumption of coffee and smoking. Those two factors have been found to be uh, protective uh, for Parkinson's disease. But uh, the mechanism of uh, the neuroprotection of these uh, lifestyle um, factors is uh, is really not fully understood. Uh, so these are some of the examples of environmental or lifestyle factors that may influence uh, the development of Parkinson's disease or protect uh, against Parkinson's disease. But clearly, the, the most important um, pathogenetic mechanism for Parkinson's disease is aging. Um, and uh, there have been many, many studies to show that aging is probably the most important factor 
probably combined with some genetic you know, predisposition. Ari mentioned one um, uh, gene, the alpha-synuclein, uh, which is an important gene, but, but actually um, is a relatively rare cause of Parkinson's disease. There are many other genes uh, that are probably more important uh, in terms of uh, their influence on the pathogenesis of Parkinson's disease. Uh, one of the most important ones is the LARC2 gene, uh, which causes an arsenal dominant Parkinson's disease clinically similar to idiopathic Parkinson's disease, uh, although these patients tend to progress somewhat uh, at a somewhat slower rate and they are more likely to have what's referred to as PIGD, postural instability, gait difficulty for Parkinson. And uh, uh, the, the important observation about this LARC2 uh, Parkinson's disease is that uh, the prevalence uh, varies depending on the populations that are studied. So the highest prevalence of LARC2-related Parkinson's disease actually is uh, in the population of Middle Eastern origin, particularly um, Moroccan populations, Ashkenazi Jewish population. Those uh, populations uh, are at a very high risk of, for having the LARC2 Parkinson's disease. Your paper also provides a very nice overview of the pathophysiological changes occurring in those with Parkinson's disease. And whilst most of us think of alpha-synuclein as the major driver of pathology in PD, it's a clearly more complex picture. Can you tell us about some of the key cellular changes that contribute to neurodegeneration in those with PD? So even though alpha-synuclein um, probably is an important pathogenic factor in the development of Parkinson's disease, there are many other factors, but just sort of developing the, the theme of alpha-synuclein, it is thought that uh, Alpha-synuclein undergoes um, misfolding and aggregation, and uh, it's the aggregated alpha-synuclein that is uh, toxic to the dopaminergic uh, neurons. This is a complex mechanism that is not uh, fully understood, but uh, one of the mechanisms by which alpha-synuclein can cause damage is uh, cause uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, for example, um, uh, impairs uh, synaptic transmission, trafficking of uh, proteins. So there are a number of ways that alpha-synuclein, particularly if it's aggregated, can cause uh, cellular damage. But uh, uh, there are other mechanisms that uh, are probably involved for a long time. It has been thought that oxidative stress uh, may play a role, and there's some evidence, for example, that iron plays a role in um, increased oxidative stress. And then uh, uh, there's uh, clearly some evidence that, that there's impaired lysosomal enzyme function in uh, Parkinson's disease. And that can be uh, partly due to um, the effect of this aggregated alpha-synuclein that we mentioned. But there are a number of genetic factors that also can impair the lysosomal function, including um, uh, glucosaprosidase when um, mutated, uh, can cause Gaucher disease, another risk factor for Parkinson's disease. But uh, just a reduction in the glucocerebrosidase activity uh, has been shown to uh, impair lysosomal function, which then uh, results in uh, abnormal clearance of um, proteins such as uh, alpha-synuclein that uh, can result in further damage. And there are a number of uh, genes that we didn't discuss before, like um, uh, DJ1 gene, ping gene, part gene. Uh, these genes um, uh, have been linked to mitochondrial function 
and uh, mutations in these uh, genes, um, which usually cause autosomal recessive young onset Parkinson, uh, has been associated with mitochondrial dysfunction. So that's another mechanism by which uh, there is neurodegeneration in the brains of patients with Parkinson's disease, resulting in the clinical phenotype. Turning to treatments now, most of us will be used to prescribing levodopa as the mainstay in treatment for Parkinson's. I might ask you to speak to the issue of levodopa phobia, which you mention in your paper, as well as your approach to more advanced levodopa preparations, which I know some of our listeners may not be as familiar with. So although there are many treatments available uh, for improvement of uh, symptoms of Parkinson's disease, clearly levodopa is by far the most effective therapy. But we know that uh, levodopa treatment can be associated with a variety of uh, side effects initially. When levodopa is introduced, it can cause some nausea, vomiting, lightheadedness, drowsiness. Those are um, uh, potential side effects when levodopa is introduced. But as uh, patients with Parkinson's disease are treated with levodopa, uh, many, clearly most, eventually uh, develop uh, what's referred to as motor fluctuations and dyskinesias. So these are um, uh, fluctuations in the symptoms so that uh, uh, the patients may turn on within uh, 15, 30 minutes after taking levodopa. Uh, they may notice some improvement in their motor symptoms uh, during that time. They can be perfectly asymptomatic. Uh, and then after several hours, uh, beneficial effects of the levodopa wear off and the patients begin to develop the classic symptoms of Parkinson's, slowness of movement, tremors, shuffling gait, partial instability. Um, and that's called so the wearing off effect. And uh, in some cases, um, uh, when patients uh, take uh, chronic levodopa, uh, these benefits from usual uh, levodopa uh, may shorten so that instead of having four to six hours of benefit, uh, they have more, maybe only two or three hours. I have some patients that have to take levodopa every hour because uh, the therapeutic window uh, gradually narrows and uh, they have a very short duration of improvement after each dose of levodopa uh, before they develop these wearing off uh, symptoms. So that's called motor fluctuation. That's uh, one of the uh, main side effects of chronic levodopa therapy. Another one is uh, dyskinesia, which is basically abnormal involuntary movement, uh, usually in a form of stereotopy or chorea involving upper body, but can involve uh, the whole body. So the patients have sort of a head bobbing type movements or body swaying uh, movements. Uh, and that is uh, another complication of levodopa. So the motor fluctuations and dyskinesias are the most feared uh, side effects of chronic levodopa therapy. As a result of that, uh, many patients uh, are afraid to take levodopa initially uh, because uh, they know from reading that uh, levodopa therapy can result in these motor fluctuations and dyskinesias. Unfortunately, in many cases, uh, this fear is carried too far, and I've seen many, many patients who have fairly advanced uh, symptoms of Parkinson's disease. They may be stage three, stage four, Parkinson's disease, where they may be even wheelchair-bound, and they still refuse to take levodopa because of their fear uh, of these uh, motor fluctuations. Uh, and this is referred to as levodopa phobia. Fortunately, the pendulum is beginning to swing uh, toward earlier introduction of levodopa. So for many years and decades, clinicians uh, um, delayed uh, the use of levodopa using a variety of strategies. Uh, such as uh, using MAO inhibitors or dopamine agonies 
or anticholinergic drugs in early stages of Parkinson in order to delay uh, the uh, introduction of levodopa. But subsequent studies uh, show that uh, if you um, look at uh, those patients who had a delay in uh, onset of levodopa therapy versus those who started uh, levodopa therapy uh, relatively early, that uh, after five to 10 years, uh, there's really no significant difference. Uh, so that uh, in patients who have uh, early, uh, moderately uh, symptomatic form of levodopa, we uh, uh, now introduce levodopa early in order to improve their quality of life. So take-home message from this <laughs> discussion is that therapy of Parkinson's disease must be individualized and every patient is different depending on uh, their symptoms and how the symptoms interfere with their functioning, we uh, may introduce levodopa early, or if the symptoms are relatively mild and do not interfere uh, with functioning, uh, we may uh, delay uh, levodopa therapy and use uh, these other strategies, including dopamine agonists early. And this is especially true in young onset Parkinson patients, uh, because the young onset Parkinson uh, patients at a particularly high risk for developing uh, these uh, levodopa-related motor fluctuations and dyskinesias. So if a young individual um, has relatively mild uh, symptoms that are not troublesome, uh, we may uh, start a patient on uh, MAOB inhibitor, such as rosagiline, and use uh, maybe dopamine agonists. Uh, but if the symptoms become uh, troublesome, um, then uh, we introduce levodopa. The key message is that our goal is uh, to improve the quality of life of the patient and uh, not to delay levodopa therapy um, in order to prevent uh, these uh, motor fluctuations and dyskinesias. Deep brain stimulation has, of course, been around for a while as a treatment and more recently uh, focused ultrasound has become um, a treatment for some. Uh, based on the current evidence, who are the patients that we should be selecting for these more advanced therapies. Deep brain stimulation uh, was introduced several decades ago um, as a treatment for patients who have moderately advanced Parkinson's disease, uh, who despite medical therapy, um, continue to have these severe motor fluctuations and dyskinesias or severe tremor. So th this is the category of patients that probably would be most uh, suited for DBS uh, as, as a treatment. It involves implantation of electrodes into um, several targets, subthalamic nucleus or globus pallidus interna. Um, and those uh, two targets uh, are selected based on the clinical presentation of the patient. Uh, but many studies have shown that uh, both GPI and SDN uh, DBS can be very effective in improving uh, motor fluctuations and dyskinesias. Those um, symptoms uh, can be effectively treated, but if the patient uh, has additional symptoms, particularly non-motor symptoms such as cognitive uh, decline or dysautonomia, then uh, we uh, try to consider uh, other options. One of the options uh, is the focused ultrasonogram, uh, which um, was introduced several years ago and has been approved by the FDA for the treatment of uh, essential tremor and uh, also um, Parkinson's disease. But in, in case of Parkinson's disease uh, and uh, also essential tremor, it has to be used unilaterally because there's some evidence that uh, the focused ultrasound lesion can uh, cause some um, problems, uh, neurologic complications, particularly when it's used bilaterally. Uh, so in most uh, instances, uh, a focused ultrasound 
uh, is used as a unilateral you know, treatment uh, to control contralateral tremor or the contralateral Parkinsonian symptoms. So um, uh, those are uh, sort of surgical uh, approaches that are currently used in patients uh, with advanced Parkinson's disease or moderately advanced Parkinson's disease who have uh, uh, disabling motor fluctuations in dyskinesias. And finally, a comment on the future, perhaps. Uh, you discuss cell replacement therapy uh, in your paper. Um, do you see this as a potential future mainstream therapy? Cell replacement therapies have been considered uh, as a potential treatment for a long, long time. And uh, I think uh, most neurologists are aware of uh, fetal cell transplants uh, that were introduced uh, maybe 20 years ago uh, as a potential treatment for uh, patients uh, with Parkinson's disease. Although the fetal transplant uh, uh, treatments were considered to be relatively uh, safe, uh, many patients uh, unfortunately develop complications, including what's called runaway dyskinesias, where they would have dyskinesia even without levodopa uh, therapy. And some of these patients actually required uh, deep brain stimulation to control these dyskinesias. Furthermore, it was found that these uh, um, implanted uh, fetal cells actually developed pathological changes, uh, such as Lewy bodies uh, that we discussed earlier, uh, suggesting the pathology from the host uh, brain uh, actually can uh, be transmitted to these uh, donor cells. So that uh, procedure has essentially been abandoned, although there are some uh, clinical trials still, still currently underway, especially in Europe, looking at fetal transplants as a potential treatment. Probably the most promising emerging um, um, form of uh, cell replacement therapy is the development of induced pluripotent stem cells. Uh, this is a concept that um, is quite um, uh, intriguing and exciting because it involves uh, the, the patient um, and particularly the skin or fibroblast of the patient as being the donor uh, of um, uh, these uh, cells. So. Uh, a skin biopsy can be taken, um, the fibroblasts can be grown and then coached to um, evolve into neuronal progenital cells, uh, which uh, then can be um, implanted into uh, the patient's own brain um, and presumably uh, would grow um, in the brain and uh, innovate uh, uh, damaged uh, striatum. And there was a, a paper uh, just published in the New Gradual Medicine, a single case report, which created a great deal of controversy for a number of uh, reasons that we discussed in a paper that we just uh, published together with uh, uh, doctors Oaken and Cordover to um, uh, highlight uh, the possibility of autologous uh, skin fibroblasts as a donor for these uh, stem cells. Um, there are a number of uh, problems with that particular you know, paper, but nevertheless, uh, the technique of induced pluripotent stem cells uh, is currently being um, intensely investigated in animal models and presumably will be soon investigated in clinical trials. And that, to me, is uh, actually a very promising form of uh, therapy and Certainly, among the experimental therapeutic uh, techniques that are currently being investigated, this is uh, one of the most exciting areas of uh, interest. Well, I'd very much like to thank my guest today, Professor Joseph Jankovic, who is the Distinguished Chair in Movement Disorders at Baylor College of Medicine, for providing such an excellent overview of the pathology, etiology and 
treatments in Parkinson's disease uh, and really do recommend his paper as a contemporary reference for you all, which is freely available for download at the JNNP website. So for now, until next time, thanks and goodbye.